You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. If you've ever been curious about the real or fictional worlds, those who create or what inspires, then you'll enjoy tonight's episode of Huey Tigers. The only podcast show where we take life by the tail. This is Huey Tigers. Hi all, I'm your host, Jared Zerf, and this is UB Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Just a quick heads up today, this episode contains some difficult topics such as death, mental illness, assault, and the individual worth of a man. I happen to know today's guest, Dave Geiger, personally, so I've had to come to my own answers on those. All I ask is that you do the same, and that you consider the following words as you listen to our conversation. What value do you place on a life before you know what will come of it? Here with me today is Dave Geiger, author of In the Matter of Edwin Potter, and Dave, how would you describe yourself? How would I describe myself? Uh, I guess by this time, uh, I am an advocate for the mentally ill. I have mental illness, and uh, I am also involved with the court system as a result of having mental illness and a breakdown back in 1979. Uh, so having gotten this far, which is like 39, 40 years later, mm-hmm. uh, I am, have no choice because, uh, other than to be an advocate. You know, I started writing articles. I had to write a book, and uh, advocacy seems to be where I am today. So, Dave, I was wondering if you could help me out. I've known you probably about five or six years. When in that time did we first have a conversation about the story you're going to share today? Oh, geez, I didn't keep track of that. I started writing the book in 2010. Okay. Uh, I, did not, I did not know you at that time. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, I've, uh, I've met Marnie around 2012, and through her I met you and your family. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about that time. Right, so it was at least a couple of years before you felt... I suppose, comfortable enough to come to us with this and remarkable and I think incredibly difficult story to share that you wanted to make public for the purpose of advocacy. Well, what I, uh, what I did, I would, Marnie knew I was writing the story. Like I said, I started in 2010 and Marnie knew I was writing the story. That was you know, one of the first things that I did by, at that time when I was meeting women and dating uh, was to let them read uh, part of my book because that answers a lot of questions. Because <laughs> that answers a lot is of questions. Good? We don't have to get these things. We have to get these things out of the way at the beginning. Is that huh? the first date, the second date? Yeah, maybe the second date. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, so uh, she said that you and Barbara were have a business uh, doing editing and so on and, and encouraging people uh, to write books and working along as editor and, uh, and whatever work out needs to go with it. And uh, that uh, that's how it worked out. Right. So full disclosure to the audience, Dave, you and I and our business have worked together for about a few years. That contract is in the past now. And to be honest, after I heard the story, I would have had you on the show one way or the other. So our working together has no bearing on financially why we're doing the episode today. But it is part of the relationship we had and part of why you initially brought this tale to us. That said, I have to admit, and 
we were, when you first sat down with us that day and told the story that we're going to share today, I had a difficult time reconciling that person with the Dave I knew, the person Marnie had fallen in love with that she had taken with her to all these family gatherings, to Christmas gingerbread parties, and we had watched as you meticulously in your fashion put together these perfect little replica houses in... <laughs> And here you are. What the gingerbread houses? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here you are in the living room telling us this tale, this part of your life that is, I imagine, still quite difficult to share. And it is difficult to share. And the first thought in my mind is, is this a different Dave? I don't, I don't know who you're talking about at all. And I cannot reconcile him with the man who's telling me this story now. They seemed entirely alien people from each other. And I know one of the hard conversations we had in taking this on as an assignment, and one of our other senior partners, Pete, asked, I think, the question you've probably encountered before. Yes, he's recovered, or in remission, I think, is the term that's used nowadays. Certainly. When you are no longer experiencing the severity of this condition you you had before, schizophrenia. I think the, the first or second question our senior partner Pete asked was, is it likely, is it possible that this would happen again? And to whom? To someone we know, to Marnie, to ourselves? Is that a risk we're willing to take? And I don't think we had an answer at first because the, the difficulty of trying to understand and reconcile these two different people that we had been presented with and find or realize that they were the same person but different points of life. And the business question of do we take this on as an assignment, a project, because there's a need to talk about these issues surrounding advocacy. I don't well, know. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's the issue that the judge has is, you know, will it happen again? Uh, she believes that uh, I am. Um, uh, I could go off at any time. Well, that's not what the uh, medical profession feels. These things happen over a long period of time, maybe maybe months, certainly months, certainly years. Might might may even say that uh, I did have a relapse. Well, let's let's start here. The uh, the the um, breakdown I had was originally in 1979, mm-hmm. where. Uh, my wife uh, died in my hands, and my son was also injured. Um, she and uh, so that was in 1979. That happened, and I stayed in the hospital for a long period of time, and was let out. And so we had a relapse back in 2000, like 16 years. What is it? 2000 was uh, how many years later? Is that uh, one uh, about 21 years later? Uh, so. Um, and then I, we had to go through it all again. We had to go through the slow process of getting out, being, receiving medication the second time. Uh, so uh, the opinion of the doctor is that these things do not uh, happen you know, with the slap of a finger. So it takes a long time for these things to come out. And also, it's it's been 40 years, and I've only had one relapse. You know, So there's a good... Uh, indication that this is this is not going to happen uh, quickly, uh, and it, it's it's just you know there's there's no need for people to worry. You know, when I walk into the room, am I going to go off and kill somebody? I was I was going to ask you. Part I guess part of what I was leading towards is how often do you encounter that perception when you first divulge the story? For instance, on that first or second date, that will I be the next one? Will I? be subjected to this other part of you, this thing I don't quite understand. Because there is, I think, and you can probably speak to this more than I can, a perception that mental illness 
can lead to these sudden outbursts. I have not had a problem with that in meeting people. Uh, however, in dating, and this goes back a number of years, sure. and however, in dating, the people who are most um, opposed to meeting with me or, or have the worst opinion of me is the people who have mental illness in their family. And so probably they see it every day and deal with the issues that mm. uh, the in, uh, sick individual has. You know, they, they look at me as just one more and they won't, don't want to have anything to do with me. But I, I have not had a problem uh, with people. In the work world, again, we're, we're talking about something else again. Uh, the uh, the employers do not want to take me on because I have mental illness. You know, they don't want to take any, but the same as problem is uh, with people who are or who have gotten out of prison, you know, they want to take them on either, you know, so we all have to be perfect in the uh, the world of work if we ever want to get a job. And we're trying to address that now. I know there's so much to talk about. And I think that's always part of the problem with this because there really is. I wrote a book. <laughs> and you would think that in the writing of the book, you'd be able to contain the reality in that. But the truth is, I think, as you've found, the book only expresses a portion of what you've been through, right? It's true. It's true. It only expresses a portion of what I've been through. There are other stories that I could tell. There are longer stories I could tell. But I thought it would take away from the clarity of the picture that I was trying to paint. I would just be there. I'd be rambling on and on. And I've heard people ramble on and on. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. So I, I said what needed to be said, I felt, in the story. It made it an interesting story for those who have read it, and uh, it also provides insight to what's going on. So the book is titled In the Matter of Edwin Potter, is a fictional character, correct? No, no, Edwin Potter is me. Okay, and, I, and I'm not afraid to say that because if you read the back of the book, it says it's an autobiography. Well, if it's an autobiography and you got Edwin Potter as the character, that must be me who's a, who's split, who is right. Edwin so, Potter. I guess part of, the, part of the question most folks would ask is what, what led you to make that choice to establish a character who shares your life but not your name and likewise the people in that character's life? What prompts that change in names? Why is that necessary? Why did you choose to? I struggled with that. You know, I thought maybe I'd have a pseudonym. I thought maybe I'd write it as anonymous. And uh, I had uh, a difficult time with it. And so I came to the conclusion that I should use a different name for the main character in the book. Uh, the reason is, and, I, and part of the reason is because I changed everybody's name in the book. Everybody has a different, a different name because I didn't want to, I wasn't interested in exposing anybody and, and poor, pointing at them and saying that they're, they're the fault of all this, this particular situation. You know, it could have been anybody. It could have been a different set of people, but I still would have had the experience. So I changed everybody's name, including the main character, Edwin Potter. Uh, I am Edwin Potter. And uh, that's the reason for that. I know I always found it fascinating when you, or I found it fascinating when you brought this book to us that you had chosen the specific title because it is the way a settled case is described, right? In the matter of, and then. Yes, right. And that that is a simple legal, technical phrasing for tracking information once a case is settled. But in the process of talking about the story, we find it's much more about the substance of this person, Edwin Potter, and the value he finds in that, or the value the society finds in that, or the argument over whether he could or have any value yeah. in Yes, so, yes. You, it's a, it's much deeper than simply a, a title to a case. In the matter of Edwin Potter, there's a lot of things that go on that, that, that never get into the court. And I, I express those. I think I would love to, and I think the audience would find this fascinating too. Could you describe for me a day in the life of Edwin Potter? Just He was, what, 24, 25, 26 at the time that all of this began? 
2425, yeah, something like that. What what are you sitting here looking for? Can you walk me through his every day? What he wakes up, what his breakfast is like, what going to work is like. I, I want to see him. I want to know what this life was like before everything changed so dramatically. Oh, I can't do that. I, I am, I still have not straightened that out in my mind. I have no idea. Uh, he, you know, it's like anybody else. You get up, you have breakfast, you brush your teeth, whatever, and uh, you go to work and you come home and you, uh, uh, you know, talk with your wife. Um, but I, I, I am still struggling with that. You know, what, what happened back then? And I can't tell you. I, otherwise I would write another book. I'd write a sequel or a prequel. Um, and it just doesn't happen. And as far as I'm concerned, it's no different from anybody else. Do, do you find it difficult to even pull those memories together now? I do. I do because I, I I'm thinking of the things that I saw and I, 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 what's real and what is not real. I have no idea. I, I really have no idea. I was so confused at that time. No. You've been diagnosed with schizophrenia. When the incident, which we'll talk about soon, happened, had there been any official diagnosis, or was this at a time when it was not as easy to observe or to be made aware of? Had you experienced anything before this moment that you... Oh, no. You mean back in uh, 1979 or at that time? Uh, No, there... After after it happened, everybody talks after after these things happened. My parents said that they saw something happening, but they didn't know what to do. Mm. What did they see? Well, that's that's a that's the way my family talks. We don't give a lot of details. They saw that something was happening. Is is the best I can tell you. In other words, there was something they knew that they could feel. But the, they was not the, I was not their son. I was not acting as their son. I was a loner to begin with. You know, I've always been a loner all my life. Mm-hmm. Much has changed. Much has changed uh, in recent years. Talking about, uh, gee, since 1990, thereabouts, I think a lot of changes came about as a result of the divorce from my second wife. Uh, and uh, I have improved uh, drastically, tremendously since that time. Have they ever told you when they begin to have that feeling? Was it when you were a teenager, when you became an adult? Well, that, that that type of schizophrenia, the schizophrenia comes out, uh, begins to manifest itself at about uh, 18 years old for males and maybe a little bit older, 24 for women. So it's quite possible that even if they could see the beginning indications, there wasn't enough to suggest it was any one thing yet. That's hard to tell. You know that uh, I don't I don't have the medical training. Sure. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to answer question. No, it's it's. I'm just I'm trying to I suppose see what that whole family life is like before this because our understanding of mental illness now, how we diagnose it, how we define it, is so different. Well, in some ways so different, and others not so much. So Edwin is at twenty three, twenty four, twenty five. Where was he working at the time? Uh, ITT. ITT. And what did he do? I was an engineer, uh, and I was working on power supplies at that time. Okay. What was his role day to day? Was there a particular part of the project he was assigned? Well, yeah, yeah, we designed power supplies, you know, whatever the uh, it was a military um, you know, contractor, and uh, the it was the designed communications equipment, and my job was to help design the, uh, the power supplies that would go in there. And why why that role? Was it something about that particular kind of work? Uh, that no, he no, no, I was an engineer, and that was uh, what I part of what I was trained to do. I was interested in the communications field, and this was the job I was able to get. So I started with power supplies. You know, as time go by goes by, I would hope to get something else, uh, get something else going. So part of schizophrenia is the inability to discern what you're experiencing from what is happening. 
or uh, what yeah, is happening is what hard is time, happening. Yeah. Hard time, have a hard time um, discerning what's real and what is not. You describe in the book a certain particular type of, I suppose we call it a delusion, that took hold of you so severely, and it did tie into your work. Could you walk us through that or describe that, that view of the world, what it felt like for Edwin when this realization came to him? Well, that uh, is, is described in the book. But the, the problem was that Edwin was experienced is that he had this delusion that his employer uh, was going to make him make the uh, project succeed, bring it to bring the project to a successful conclusion. Okay, but he's not prepared. He's he's only a young man. He has no idea how to run a multi million dollar project with all the all the people that are involved and all the uh, things that have to be done. He was not prepared. He was scared to death, and uh, he. Uh, when he eventually quit his job. That's not in the book. The, the, the quitting of the job was at his wife's discretion. He was deeply involved in religion. And uh, his, his wife's argument was that uh, you'll be, uh, you should be, become a minister, uh, quit your job, become a minister, God will provide. You know, and uh, that just doesn't happen. That so way. I'd like to sit for a moment on that argument because these are genuine, these are real fears I think anyone in the 20s goes through that I am untrained, I am unprepared for the life I am in now. I have a wife, I have a child, I have to provide for them, but I, I am terrified of the failure that will undermine all of that. And now you're having this argument with your wife who's saying, it's fine, God will give us a new way to provide. That was her argument, yes, yes. I know it's difficult to talk about her, but can we, can we see her for a bit? Can you tell me what she was like? She was a beautiful woman, but uh, she did not uh, go beyond high school, uh, and uh, she was deeply involved with uh, religion. She was, I believe it was more of a, a personality cult that she was involved with, and I was involved with it too during uh, college. But as I, really? after I graduated, I'm, I'm uh, working in, in the real world, you know, have a job and things to do. And, uh, and so what uh, I started to change. I, we were involved, my wife and I were involved in the, a Protestant church, uh, the Assembly of God. And we, and I was a Catholic, and I started saying, no, this Assembly of God business is not for me. I'm going to go back to being a Catholic, and she was against that. Uh, these things I do remember. Uh, but you married uh, despite that conflict. Yes, yes, because I loved her. Did you meet her initially at this gathering of faith, or was that something that she brought you to afterward? I was at this gathering of faith. We met in college, uh, maybe uh, sophomore year. What was that initial moment like? What, what did you see that said to you, this is the woman I want to marry? Oh, geez. <laughs> I mean, if you can remember it, it's uh, because I know so little about her. Uh, no, I can't. Well, we talked, you know, and uh, we spent a lot of time together. We enjoyed company, you know, and uh, so this was something that I wanted to do. So when you had that fight then and you say – I need this job to provide for us, to give us the life we want. And she's saying, quit it, become a minister. God will give us the means to survive. How, how far into your marriage did that, did that conversation happen? Well, we got married in 76, well, in my senior year. Okay. And uh, 79 it happened, so that was three years. Mm -hmm. So this project, as best Edward could see, is the, is the moment where he either makes himself eligible for a future better work and higher pay or – is sidelined to the track of people left behind. I guess so, if that's the way it works. I never really paid much attention to how that happened. I always did my best at my job. You know, uh, I was very interested in, in doing a good job uh, and getting recognition for it like anybody else and then hoping to uh, you know, get more money as, as we advance. You know, God does not provide things out of thin air. Out of, uh, thin air. 
Did you find the Norman Rockwell depiction of American life appealing? Did you find that a bit too idyllic? How did you relate to no, that? No, that's too, that's too idyllic. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> Not enough work involved in it. <laughs> I have that's, that's fantasy for me. Sure. I, have, I don't believe in that. Right, but there was this belief that through hard work, effort, and diligence, I will receive my appropriate rewards, and our family life will improve as a result of that. Now that I believe, yeah. If hard work will you know, work hard, and uh, you'll, you'll get to reap the rewards down the line. And here comes this idea and this delusion in your mind that none of that will happen if you don't satisfy your superiors right now this time. Right. So then, yeah. yeah. What made that threat seem so immediate? What did they, what did Edwin believe they were going to do? I'm not sure where it started, but uh, it was about that time he had the breakdown and he got this delusion that, uh, you know, his uh, employer is going to come after him to make him finish the project. And, uh, and if not, they were going to take us. And if he refused, they would take his family, his, his wife and child and uh, torture them or whatever it is that they want to do in order to make him perform. OK, against his will. So that's the idea. And that's the idea that I espouse in the book. So they had the means, the will, the desire to do this because this contract was so necessary. Yes. So vital. That's, it's, it's just fascinating how the human mind works to take so much of the, the basic fear, the, the thing experienced, and then revise that, I suppose. What did Edwin think was the, what made the leap from, I have no power to I have but this one choice? Oh, I can't, I can't answer that. Uh, when, in, the, in the delusion, Edwin kept following his thoughts. He thought he heard people say such and such a thing, okay? And that led him, he followed those thoughts, those things going through his mind to, uh, to their conclusion, which, and the conclusion is another crazy thought, another delusion that this is going to happen and that's going to happen. Something else is going to happen. And he sees, uh, things are actually going on and it's too late, say, like somebody, uh, I don't know, walking down the street. Well, that has a special significance to Edwin. But he thinks that maybe they're surveying, surveilling him. Okay, so uh, all these all these things is a misinterpretation of reality, and that's what schizophrenia is all about, as I understand it. Okay, let's talk about the Flopcast. Where every week we drink a lot of coffee and we talk about comic books, movies, conventions, music, Saturday morning cartoons. Oh, don't forget the coffee. Lots of weird, obscure pop culture stuff from the 70s and 80s. And chickens. Yeah, chickens. This will be the stupidest half hour of your week. We guarantee it. You can find us on the ESO Network. And... Flopcast.net. You opened the book. You made the choice to open the book in this moment, in this point of Edwin running. Right. Could you just read a little bit of it, just to be, maybe even the opening? Because it's one thing to talk about, to describe. It's another thing true, as you said, try to provide even a, a fragment or an idea of what it was like when it happened. All right. How much of this do you want me to read? You want to stop me? Tell you what, just start from the beginning and let's, and we'll go. Okay. All right. Uh, chapter one, tragedy. Edward Potter was confused. The problem had been building things that he had seen, things that he had heard, things that he had remembered. And now it had come to this. Edwin was running desperately down the middle of the street on this summer night. Where are they? Edwin, Edwin, where are they? Edwin Potter, there is no they. It all looked so 
surreal. The streets were empty. Where was everyone? This was a big city suburb. Why was he alone in the street? Then up ahead, a car without its headlights on turned slowly in Edwin's direction. Fear rose in him and brought him to tears. They see me. They see me. They'll tell the others. My life is over. The car switched on its lights and headed gradually down another street. Edwin was terrified. He needed to get to his parents' house less than a mile from his own home. He could not take his car. It might have been rigged with explosives that they had put there. So he ran. That car, the car I just saw. What about the car? A co-worker had said something. Yes. Yes, that was it. He said that they would be watching. They were keeping their eyes on me. There was a project to be done, and he was the one chosen to make it happen. But he was not. But he was just a young man. He did not know how to take on a project of that size, millions of dollars, and it was doomed to failure. But it did not matter. He was the one, and they would torture his young wife and infant son to make him bring it to a successful completion. And they were a mega corporation. They could get what they wanted. He reached the hill. A light came on at the front porch of one of the houses as he ran past, and a woman came out quietly. She watched him as he receded up the street, but Edward focused on his destination, nervous as a cat, knowing that he was running directly into the teeth of the beast. Would he get there? Would they get to him first? Almost there now. When he reached the house, he threw open the door to the breezeway and almost jumped over to the doorbell and pressed it. No one answered, so he opened the screen door and started to hammer the inside door with his fist. He saw the lights come on. He dropped himself down onto the concrete step and grabbed the hair at the back of his head, but it was already too late. His father came to the door. What are you doing? What are you kicking the door for? What had he done? Edwin had to choose. Should he trust this man? Yes, there was no choice. If this man were a part of their plan, Edwin would lose. If not, they would be waiting for him elsewhere. Edwin burned out breathlessly. I killed my wife and son. What? I killed my wife and son. His mother by this time had come to the door. What is all this commotion about? His father replied in a hushed voice. He said that he killed Amy and Denny. Call the police. Wait. Call an ambulance first. She turned back inside hurriedly. He bent down and put his arm around his son. You didn't hurt anybody. Don't say that. Come inside. Edwin went into the kitchen and sat in his chair. His father sat in his own chair and kept an eye on his son. Edwin could hear his mother on the telephone in the next room. In a minute, a police car pulled up in front of the house. Officer Frank Castellano got out and cautiously approached the kitchen door. Derek, Mr. Potter, we're in here, Frank. How is he? Not well. Let's go into the other room and talk. Can your wife watch him? Ellen, yes. He wants you to watch Edwin for a minute. Okay. Edwin watched all this happen. Was this clean-shaven young man in uniform really a policeman? How much was it costing them to have him come in a squad car to parade as a cop? How far were they willing to go? How big was this plot? Just how important was he, Edwin? The voices carried on in the other room about bringing him over to the police station and calling the county. It might be easier to handle him if you come with us. Okay. Okay, let's see if we can get him to come with us. If there's a problem, we won't force him. I'll call for backup. Okay, let's see what he does. Edwin's father came back into the kitchen. Ed, listen, we have to take you over to the police station. Can you come with us? Okay, he answered. He was not—he was getting in only deeper into the situation. How was he to get out? Officer Castellano opened the door. Edwin's father took him his arm, his son by his arm, and led him outside. Over this way, said his father, guiding Edwin to the squad car. The officer led the way. Fear gripped Edwin. Would they kill him now? Was his father a part of it? Was this his father? He remembered more of what he had heard at work. They told him that the officer, this officer, would come to the house, that Edwin and his father would be taken to the police station. All of it was coming true. 
Officer Castellano opened the rear door of the car. Got Edwin got in, followed by his father. The officer shut the door, then went around and got in at the driver's door. He radioed that they were leaving, and they drove quickly to the station. There, Edwin and his father were put into a holding cell while the police talked about the status of the situation. In the cell, Edwin squirmed on the bed so much that his father suggested that he lie on the floor, which he did, but to no avail. He tensed up even more. Then, all of a sudden, he went limp. And there he lay, motionless, his eyes glassy and unblinking. Blink your eyes, his father said uncomfortably, covering him with his hand. Then he called to an officer nearby. Can you give us a blanket? He must be in shock. The officer came over to take a look. Okay. Some moments passed before the officer came back with a blanket that Edwin's father put over his son and covered his eyes. In the meantime, there was some discussion going on at the desk with the county about the action that should be taken at this time. They ascertained that there had been an incident at the home. Both of the injured were admitted to critical care at the local hospital. The result was that the police needed to put Edwin somewhere for the night. He would most probably be arraigned the next day, so the decision was that he would be put in the county jail. Derek called uh, Officer Castellano. Yes, answered Edwin's father. The county is going to pick him up and bring him over to the jail. They'll be here when they get a chance. He said about 20 minutes. I'm sorry. How do you feel right now? I think we we uh, prepped this uh, very well. All the things that we're looking for, all the, all the reasons why Edward is doing these things, we've sort of led uh, our listeners into uh, an understanding of that. So I think, uh, but no, I feel uh, I used to, I used to be in tears when I read this. I threw a lot of tears in writing this book. Uh, I feel I've covered it. I understand it. I've gotten over it. I've I've matured, and uh, life goes on. You know, but uh, it was it was very hard, very hard to write this. Uh, I think uh, this part, part one, is called Book of Tears, and uh, there's a lots of reasons for me to, I, to feel that. I don't think we had a single conversation about this book for over a year where you didn't break down in tears at some point. Just, I remember. Yeah, just trying to describe the immensity of this. I still haven't gotten over. There, there are times I still uh, break out into tears. You know, it's just, just, it's just a terrible situation. You know, and, he, and it's done. It's done. It was me who did it. It's uh, so hard, so hard to live with. But you got to go on. Life has got to go on. You can't, you can't just stop and and let uh, let it be rule your life and say, uh, there, there is no future. It's the end for me. You know, you, you got to go on. You said before that you and your wife were both quite religious. Do you feel like you've been able to forgive yourself? Can you? You have to. You have to. Uh, if I can't forgive myself, I probably will kill myself by now. It's been 40 years. If you remember Louis Costello, mm -hmm. uh, who, uh, who grew up in Patterson, uh, which is right down the road here, uh, he uh, he uh, you know he became successful. But uh, what happened? There was a, a problem. There was an incident at his house. He his his child drowned in the pool mm -hmm. okay he, he never forgave himself and he drank himself to death you know, the, and that, the, that's what happens you got to forgive yourself otherwise you know you're, you're just you're the end is near i guess we can say do you think you david geiger not edwin potter although that's the name we use for the book do you think you david yeah. geiger are worthy of forgiveness are worthy of forgiveness by other people <laughs> not by yourself but by <laughs> your child by his family your wife's <laughs> family there is a lot of there's a lot of burdens that I live with, you know, people hating me and so on and so forth. I, I just I've grown uh, 
matured tremendously and I say you got to move on you know you can't let people run your life if they're going to hate you well that's their problem you move on to uh, the next thing it reminds me in Judaism there is the holiday Yom Kippur which is one of the most somber days of reflection and one of the rituals that occurs there is the right of asking forgiveness. Typically, there's a whole set of prayers you say to beg from, for God to forgive you for what you've done. You as the individual, you as the society, you as humanity on the whole. But there's a second set of rights where you ask for forgiveness from other individuals. And I find it always, I always find it fascinating because as part of the process, you were allowed to ask each individual three times and they can say no twice. But the third time, the third time, if they refuse forgiveness then, then they have committed a new crime upon themselves and you as well that they must seek forgiveness for. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. What is that? Which, uh, which uh, religion is this? This is in Judaism. And oh, Judaism. Okay. I find it because I find the best rituals, the ones that actually tie us together as individuals, as societies, are the ones that make us grow and perhaps move away from our worst desires or understand and accept those as part of ourselves. And this idea that even if we may not want to, even if we may not feel like the desire is there or the or the the right is there to say, yes, I forgive, that if someone is genuine, if someone is earnest, if someone is sincere, if someone truly means to atone for what they have done, then you have to, at least within the idea of that ritual, provide them with the means to do so. So I think we'll take a break here and we'll come back and talk about the trial and everything that follows after that. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special commercial for We Podcast and We Know Things. Wow, a commercial? Yes, Sam, a commercial. You do this to me every time. Anyway, we are We Podcast and We Know Things, the single source for all of your nerdy news in gaming, TV, film, music, and all things pop culture. Heck, even wrestling. We're basically spreading the good word of nerd one episode at a time. Check us out here on the ESO Podcast Network and wherever fine podcasts are, including the iOS podcast app, CastBox, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up with all the goings-on in the nerdy world. Now back to your ESO Network podcast. Who's better than us? <sighs> My tea's cooled off finally. Tea's cooled off. <laughs> mm. this, is, this is good. This, uh, we, we've never covered these topics uh Anywhere else, a lot of this stuff. You know uh, what happened before? What were you thinking before the uh, the incident? Yeah. It's. I know a lot of it is difficult to even try recalling because shock and trauma, as I can speak from my own experience, obliterate a lot of what one should remember. But like I said, it's. It's. Uh, I. I really don't remember what happened before. I remember incidents. I remember seeing people, and I misinterpreted. Well, these people are are surveilling me. They're going to be in the house next to me mm -hmm. with their surveillance equipment and checking on what the what I'm doing in my bedroom at night. You know, so and and just crazy stuff just goes on and on and on. One thought leads to another, to another, to another. Oh, it just it just never ends. I go to bed. I'm exhausted. No, every night. That's, I mentioned that in the book, too, in uh, part one. My art history teacher, and you wouldn't think this would be the individual to talk about this, I had an art history teacher, and he opened class one day with a picture of Michelangelo's David and his family photo book and said, how are these two different and how are they similar? 
Mm-hmm. And one simple one, obviously, the most obvious response is, well, one's a piece of crafted artwork. The other is just a captured memories. And he said, no. I asked not how the thing shown is different from the other thing shown, but how the things I'm showing are different. How is this photo different from that photo? And the reality was they're not different. They're both a slight piece of what has happened that has been chosen to be defined in this frame, in this fashion, at that moment in time, and tied to things you remember that in the recalling of, you revise and amend and make or give life to. And that the the photo book, the, the family photo album itself, is a narrative, is a journey of things that we try to remember and try to forget. So... Let's talk about the trial, which is one of the more significant, if we're talking narrative, dramatic beats in the book, but also, I know for having spoken to you so many times, one of the most difficult moments in your life to describe. It has been difficult. I remember the, I remember the prosecutor was out to kill me. She really was. She says she had, she had uh, no belief that I was mentally ill, that I am mentally ill, uh, and that I uh, what I did was purposeful and with com- uh, complete intent, and uh, she was going to have me executed. I- I'm not sure how that is. I'm not sure New Jersey uh, had the death penalty at that time, but I was so confused. I had I believe definitely that uh, that was going to be the penalty if uh, if she won the case, and I really didn't care. I wasn't going to be. Uh, I-, I wasn't going to, um, you know, lie the situation and. Uh, and avoid it, okay? Uh, you know, if, or, or else I was going to be put in prison for thirty years without parole. And, and either way, it's a death sentence. I, I just, I was just not going to lie and uh, and uh, you know and avoid the situation. So I said I did it. Let uh, let whatever's going to happen happen, and uh, we got through it. Unfortunately, the uh, jury was sympathetic to our case, and they uh, acquitted me uh, by reason of insanity. And so I've spent the, the past. 39 years uh, living with it, uh, you know, with the court supervision and uh, people I had to see and, and hospitals I had to go to and doctors I had to see and all this other stuff. But uh, I think it's, a, I think I've led a much better life than being in prison for 39, 40 years. Uh, and, uh, and I think that, like I said, I think it was a death penalty if I had, if I had chosen any other plea besides uh, the insanity plea. So by this time you had, Recover is the wrong word here, but you had come down from that bout of schizophrenia, from that intense level or layer of delusion to a, I don't know, a more percolative state where they would. Yeah, I'm in, a, if I'm in, I'm in remission right now. Okay. So not, and, not by, not, I don't mean, sorry, not now, but right at the point of the trial, I should have said. At the point of the trial, I was also in remission. Okay. You know, they, they kept me in the, uh, where was it, Trenton Psychiatric Hospital mm-hmm. uh, for until I recovered, you know, I, who knows? At that time, we had no idea if I was ever going to recover. Maybe I was going to be in there for the rest of my life. And some people are, um, excuse me, but, uh, but I recovered. Okay. I was in remission, and, uh, when we saw the, uh, the attorney, uh, went from there to, uh, uh, make the case in court that uh, I was mentally ill at the time and not in control of myself. And uh, so that's what it was. And, we, and I, I described that in the book. Too. When in the legal consultation process did your lawyer sit down to you and go, here are the risks with an insanity plea versus a guilty one? Well, that was after I uh, I recovered. Okay, that's when I was in remission. Uh, the end of part one tells you it was where Edwin recovered, so where I recovered. Okay, part two now is about the trial when it picks up from there. 
So at this point, you are medicated. You're in a facility designed to treat people with mental illness, including schizophrenia. No, actually, I was not on medication. Okay. I was on medication uh, for maybe a month at the beginning, but then the doctor took me off it. It was, uh, what was it, uh, Thorazine. What led to that decision to put you on the medication and then remove it? Well, that was a doctor. That, that was a doctor's choice to do that. Uh, they, they thought that I needed medication at the time when I came into the place. And then the doctor said, uh, you know, I want to take you off, see how you handle it. So apparently I handled it well enough and he didn't put me back on it. And I was, and I did not need medication until 2000, many years later. And since that time, though, I've been on the medication on my Risperidone since 2000 uh, up to this present time. So what's that, 18 years that I'm doing well? Mm-hmm. I find it's just such a I'm trying to, I suppose, put myself in the minds of the people making these decisions about your life and the lives of your wife, your child, the people in the community who will be affected by the judgment of this trial. And I wonder if the doctor who says, here's a man and here's what's happened and I'm going to remove the medication. I wonder what the lawyer's opinion is of that decision and how that will affect your chances, your standing of the trial, whether it's the. It's a doctor's opinion. It's a doctor's, uh, you know, um, treatment. You know, it's, it's the way he treats the, uh, the case. He didn't think that I needed the medication. He tried to, he thought maybe I did not need the medication. So he took me off and uh, to see. And, uh, apparently I did not need it. And uh, didn't need it for many years. So many years later. the doctor still at that point has final say. I'm curious, did your lawyer ever express any interest or concern as to how that would influence your ability to perform as a defendant in the trial? I know a lot has happened, so it might be difficult to recall, if at all. But I'm curious. Uh, he t- he took me off it. Uh, I was concerned about going on medication because some of it is addictive. You know, at the present time, and I told the doctor, you know, I'm afraid of this stuff. No, I don't want it. I don't want it. He put me on it anyway. There's nothing I can do. Either it's either that, or give you an injection. You know, take the pill, you take the injection. So. Now, at this point, involuntary commitment was still legal, wasn't it? Yes, and that's what it was. It was involuntary and, and commitment. Okay. So the doctor's final say, he determines whether you're on the medication or not. He can take the lawyer's account, your family's, and everyone else's, but he or she has the decision. And you effectively, as the defendant and the lawyer, then have to go in and re- deal with whatever the consequences of you being on or off the medication during the trial are. There, there was a book out back about that time called uh, Reign of Error, and I forget, okay. what the, I forget the name of the uh, the doctor. Uh, yeah, the doctor who wrote it, it said had to do with psychiatry, law, and authority. And what they, basically his argument was, it says doctors are not gods. They cannot predict whether the medication is going to work or whether the, the uh, individual who is sick is going to ever recover or, or relapse again. He says, we just don't know. I'm a doctor. I'm a man. I'm a, man. I'm a human. I, I can't answer those questions. And that's what his argument was about that. And that, that. So, uh, but the, we give the doctor, and the doctor gives his opinion to the court and uh, the court decides uh, whether they should believe it or not or go along with it. That's how it works today. How early in the process did the prosecutor come down to you and announce that she wanted you to be executed? Uh, well, she didn't say it that way. Uh, How did she say it then? <laughs> it was quite a colorful way from what I saw in the book, but how did she – what do you recall her saying? She – I think the first, I think the first time I saw her was when I was actually behind bars and we were having uh, – we were going to trial. We're going to trial. I saw her psychiatrist uh, 
prior to the trial and answer the questions uh, as part of the uh, you know the the follow up that they had to do in order to present their cases to the court. Um, but uh, the I don't think I actually saw the prosecutor uh, herself until uh, I was actually in the in the court building, okay, and locked up behind bars be in, in the back room somewhere. And she came in and told me that the, she doesn't believe anything about that me being sick. She thinks I'm well. It was all pre-planned or whatever it was she was saying. And that uh, I will see to it that uh, you are dealt with summarily. Dealt with summarily. By this point... Yeah, those she, are her words. Those are my words. Okay. By this point, of course, she had... This is after the meeting, your meeting with her psychiatrist and her receipt of that evaluation. Right. This is long after that. Okay. So they had at the time, you know, I was in the hospital and they came in while I was while I was uh, crazy and uh, they uh, interviewed me. The doctors interview, interviewed me at the very beginning, you know, maybe within the first week or two. Uh, but uh, and then we sat and waited for me to recover. And, and uh, I didn't you know. And then we had the doctor's reports uh, available to us by the time uh, the uh, trial was held. How long did it take before this, both the incident and the trial itself, how long did it take before that became a public, a, a subject of public discourse? I think it was uh, well over a year. I think I think that the uh, decision of the court was in the, uh, November of 1980. I, okay. I just heard this from my attorney because he had to make up a case when we were asking for dismissal. So he had to go back, go back and look at the records. You know when uh, when was the court decision made that I was mentally ill and, uh, mm-hmm. and the decision made to uh, I was acquitted. All right. So uh, he found it. It was in 1980, I believe it was. I think November. And the, and the incident itself happened in July 1979. I see you recall in the book that there was a point made about the newspapers discussing the situation. Yes, that was at the trial. Beforehand, uh, I don't think they were too interested. They, they covered it. You know, there was a uh, bad behavior on the part of Edward Potter uh, back in July, and uh, they notified everybody going on. Then it quiet, got quiet. And then uh, when the trial came on, everything revved up again. How big at the time was your town, was your community? How many people? Do you know? Well, we're, we're in Patterson, you know, okay. the Patterson area. So we're like tens and uh, tens and twenties of thousands uh, of people, I'm sure. So a good sized. And chances good. were that by the time the jury was selected, everyone had read at least an article or two. Or well, that's part of the court the uh, selection of the uh, about the jury. Yeah. Did you hear? Did you hear? Do you know anything about this case? So mm-hmm. you, some people raise their hands and say you, you're dismissed and go back go back to the jury room. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of people who who don't know. Who don't know? Who did not read? Uh, and, and so they're part. Of, they, they've answered the next question uh, in screening the jury. Were you present for the voir dire, or was it just your lawyer? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was. I was present for that. What kind of questions did they ask besides that? Uh, has, has your family? Well, actually, do you want? I'm, I'm getting confused with the when I you know as a as. <laughs> it's interesting that after I had been acquitted and I still have my mental illness, I'm in the courts. I'm on, I'm not on probation, but I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, monitored by probation. You know, I was brought into a courtroom uh, as part of a uh, jury. <laughs> I was part of the jury selection, and one of the questions they asked was that: uh, Has your family been? Uh, have you or your family ever been in trial or or something of that mm-hmm. nature? So you. You raise your hand and they take you in the back room and they ask for the details of it. So whether to whether to dismiss you or not, and I, t- I told them right out, listen, I'm, I'm I'm monitored by the court and all this other kind of stuff. And uh, so they said, oh yes, you you are dismissed. <laughs> 
So uh, they, those are the type of questions they want to know if you have an experience with the court. Uh, have you been, have your as a family member been there? Have you were, have you ever been uh, monitored by the court or anything? You know, anything that they want a jury that will be open to the information that they get to make the decision upon the facts rather than maybe some what they feel or believe or have experienced somewhere else before, which may be wrong. So they're, they're looking for people who are open-minded and base their uh, decision upon the facts. I'm curious, if you recall, how many of the questions in that voir dire for your trial addressed mental illness, schizophrenia, people's experiences with that? Were there any? Uh, at the time of my trial, you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Um, she's, uh, they, they're pro- there were probably some. There were probably some. Fair uh, enough. Because uh, we uh, had already, I think, yeah, we had all, we had already submitted the plea that the, that the defendant was going to make and then the uh, charges that the prosecutor was going to bring against us. Then you bring in the jury because now you know what you're dealing with and uh, the, the decisions in the uh, voir dire go on from there. When you were sitting there on the stand, how did you feel? What was I wish I was. I wish I was elsewhere. That's for sure. It was a terrible time. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, if I was going to live or die. I was. I was sorry that you know this had ever happened. But no, I had. I had mental illness. I you know. I had a. I, I had a terrible time with it. I had a terrible time with it. You know, I <clears throat> actually, I'm going to rewind up a little because I think there's a better question to ask here. It's just taking me a little time to find it. When you received the diagnosis that you had suffered schizophrenia, that this there was a definable cause per se, how did that make you feel? Well, at the time I heard it, the first heard it, no, I was, I was still uh, schizophrenic. I was still suffering with schizophrenia. Uh, I had no idea. I thought they were lying to me. I, I thought this was another story. They're trying to get me to, you know, still get me to complete the project for for the big boss. Um, and it wasn't until, oh, geez, I don't know what month it was. I don't remember what time. But I, until that moment when I had uh, had my epiphany, okay, in my cell that uh, I began to understand, oh, I did. It was true. It was true. I did have schizophrenia. I did break down. All this was not unnecessary. <sighs> did you and, feel uh, relief? No. What did you feel? No, I felt I felt worse. Felt worse because you know I, I killed one person, almost killed another, and uh, and here I am in a, in a mental hospital and, and facing trial and all, and it, it was it was just terrible. It was just terrible. So when your lawyer comes to you and says, "Look, we can plead not guilty by reason of insanity." And here's the likelihood. It's about, I think you said, a, a percent, half a percent chance of success. Quarter of a percent. Quarter of a percent success. So in all likelihood, they won't believe your plea. You'll be sentenced to life in prison or death. Your life will end regardless. But even if the plea is accepted, even if they believe your plea of insanity, that you have schizophrenia, if the evidence shows in favor of that, your life will still end. Uh, I was going to be stuck in a mental institution for the rest of my life, or I was going to be in prison for 30 years without parole, or I was going to be sentenced to death. Like I said, I was confused at the time. I didn't know if New Jersey had a death penalty at that time. They used to, but I, I didn't know if it was still in effect at that time. So, yeah, there were, there were no good options. Uh, Here at 24, 25, it's over. 20, 25 years old, you know, facing these, uh, facing these things. 
What made you decide to go with the plea? I told my attorney that uh, I didn't want, did not want to plead uh, guilty to something I did not want to do. I thought I was saving my family. That's what and I say that in the book. I, I thought I was saving my family. Oh, you know, that uh, saving them from the uh, the employer that uh, I was facing, or I thought I was facing. I thought I was saving my family. And you understood after at this point that none of that was true. The fears themselves might have been real, but the the, the plot, the plan, as it were, was not. There, there was no. There was no plot. There was no plot. If you want to know more about Dave's advocacy work on mental health, criminal justice, and prison reform, you can visit his site at www.davidgeiger.com. You can also listen to his interview with author and job search strategist Bruce Hurwitz on the podcast show Bruce Hurwitz Presents. For more information on schizophrenia and related illnesses, SARDA, that's S-A-R-D-A-A dot org, is a good place to start. And if you'd like to know more about issues pertaining to prisoner entry, recidivism, and reform, the John Jay College for Criminal Justice offers a wealth of programs, information, and events. You can also find additional links to other sources and sites in the show notes. So that's it for the show. If you like what you hear, you can leave us a review on Google Play, Stitcher iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app, or show your support on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash Jared Surf And of course, if you have a tale of your own to share, you can write to us at feedusyourtales at hubetigers.com That's Tigers of the Y. See you all next time. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.